This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Felipe Santos, and today we're going to be talking about um, social movements, their influence in society, and the impact they have had in history and in our current times. And for this, I'm very happy to have with us today uh, senior lecturer Lawrence Cox from Maynooth University, who has recently published a book called why Social Movements Matter, an introduction, published with Roman and Littlefield. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Thanks, Felipe. So the first question I would like to, to ask you is basically uh, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit uh, about your background so our listeners can also uh, know where your knowledge about social movements uh, come from. Sure. So um, I've been in social movements, uh, I suppose, for about 35 years, a wide range of different movements, mostly in Ireland, but also elsewhere in Western Europe. And then for about a quarter of a century, I've been researching social movements, uh, working class community organizing, uh, the global anti-capitalist movement. Uh, Pan-Asian religious movements in the colonial period, really quite a wide range of things. Wow, that that sounds like like an extensive uh, experience. Um, and actually, um, this is uh, all these knowledges are also reflected in in your book because even if you're an academic yourself, or like most of the time, I would assume, um, this book is not strictly an academic book and it's aimed for a wider audience. So, why have you decided to to write it in this way? Well, I think a self-confident academic field actually needs to tell people outside of academia why they might be interested. And you see quite a lot of disciplines will do this. Historians will do this, natural scientists will do it, psychologists, economists, archaeologists, and so on. But in social movement studies, at least, we just haven't done that. Uh, The only introductory books to studying social movements that I'm aware of are books for captive audiences. They are introductions for undergraduates. So I don't think anybody has ever systematically made the attempt to say to people, hey, here's why it might be worth being interested in social movements. Here's what understanding social movements better uh, might have to offer the wider world. And um, you start the book uh, going back to basics and explaining the importance of uh, social movements for people's lives. So why do we need social movements? 
So we've got lots of needs as human beings, and in the societies we live in, a lot of those needs aren't met. So quite often when things are urgent or pressing, we can't find ways of sorting them out, whether legally, officially, through the appropriate channels, so to speak, or unofficially, illegally, privately, or whatever. But when the problem that we've got is one that's shared with a lot of other people, and repeated efforts to change that don't make a difference, then some kind of collective action is what's needed to shift that. So take a perhaps extreme example, police killings of black youth. It's a massive issue. It's an ongoing issue. It's very clear that parents can do virtually nothing to protect their kids and that going through the official structures has virtually zero impact. So at that point, people are going to get together. They're going to try and challenge the structures, the institutions. In other words, they're going to develop some kind of social movement. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, in addition to, to white people need a social movement, um, you also make the case why societies as a whole uh, need them and give many historical examples uh, about how social movements have changed uh, the world we live in uh, like until now. So can you speak us a bit about that? Yeah, um, pretty much. No king in history, no emperor in history, no dictator in history has woken up one morning and said, you know what, I think we could do with democracy instead. Uh, um, so everywhere that we have some kind of democratic system with all the limitations and qualifications of actually existing democracy, it's because people have pushed for that. Everywhere that we see some kind of welfare provision, some collective provision in education, health, for old age, sickness, unemployment, that's a result of popular pressure against systems that haven't wanted to provide it. A um, hundred years ago, the vast majority of the globe, the vast majority of human beings were ruled by empires. They pushed those empires away. Yeah. Um, so the societies that we live in, the things that we take for granted, they're the results often of previous generations of struggle. Okay, and um, to, to supplement this point, you, you give very concrete examples uh, of how social movements have impacted history. So would you want to, to explain some of the, the ones that you have given, both from the Global North and the Global South? Well, I can talk about Ireland, where I am now. So a hundred years back, in 1919, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, was in the process of becoming independent from the UK uh, through absolutely massive collective action, which we sometimes talk about in terms of more dramatic and the, the, um, the first IRA, I suppose, so the military side. But that wouldn't have made any difference without an absolutely massive movement for national independence and a nationalist movement that went back uh, over 50 years uh, in 
in the form it existed then. Uh, and that's the reason why, at the end of the day, uh, the British government's attempts to suppress it militarily failed, uh, that it wasn't a military question. It was a political question. And people in the present-day republic were no longer willing to be ruled um, as part of somebody else's empire. Now, the society they created then famously wound up being dominated by a very fundamentalist parochial form of Catholicism. That's the world I grew up in in the 70s and 80s. Maynooth, where I teach, is right beside the headquarters of the Catholic hierarchy. And if you walk around those headquarters now, you wouldn't know how much power it had even 20 years back. Uh, it's been absolutely washed away by the women's movement, by LGBTQ activists, uh, by people pushing for a more secular, tolerant, open republic. And most recently, of course, by the pro-choice referendum last year. And after after making a very strong defense of the importance of uh, social movements, you explore something I believe is uh, very interesting and also relevant for, for the current times, which is the relation between uh, social movements, progressive social movements, and uh, the institutionalized left. And I'm saying that this is very relevant because now there are plenty of examples of progressive social movements who want to avoid uh, the leftist label, while there are many parties who, who are trying to co-opt them, there are also like uh, more and more parties, uh, both in the left and in the right, who are trying to lead uh, mobilizations in the street. And on the other hand, there are also other leftist parties uh, that have prioritized their institutional work over their presence in the streets. Uh, so how, how do you see this relation between uh, social movements and the wider left? So if we go back a little bit in history, what we find is that what we call the wider left was a formal, institutional, sometimes parliamentary expression of social movements. So that's the case in the English Revolution. In the French Revolution, we see that the forces um, pushing against the monarchy towards democracy as we get into the 19th century for the separation of church and state. Those find various parliamentary expressions, which don't really formalize as what we call parties until the later 19th century. And the first thing that you'd call a modern parliamentary party is the German Social Democratic Party, is the institutional organization of the workers' movement, which by that point has become a very strong presence uh, across a number of continents. So as we go into the later 19th and through the 20th century, it seemed obvious to people that if you wanted to change things, the thing that you wanted to change, the lever of change, was the nation-state. And the way to change the nation-state was in some form through a political party, whether the emph emphasis was a parliamentary, electoral one, or in some cases an insurrectionary one, as with the Bolsheviks, under uh, situations of a very repressive empire. 
So that's what people looked toward, and it's what people looked towards on the whole uh, in the colonized world as well. But what came out of um, the ruins of empire were new nation-states, typically ruled by nationalist political parties, which had been central organizing structures for the independence struggles of various times, particularly, of course, in Asia and Africa, because the Latin American experience is a different one, is an older one. So all of that seemed obvious. Where this started to become less obvious, these relationships, is after World War II, with the settlement between East and West, with the establishment of these new post-colonial states, and a situation where for all sorts of people it seemed that the new nationalist party in power, or in the Eastern Bloc the Stalinist party in power, or various places in the West the Social Democratic, or it might be the Christian Democratic or whatever party in power, was not fully representing their interests, that all sorts of social pressures, very visibly women, LGBT people, ethnic minorities, migrants, youth, unskilled workers, and so on, were not represented through these. And that process explodes famously in what historians call the long 1968. So a whole cycle of struggles which disrupt not just the political relationships of what's then the West, but also in Prague in particular, um, start to bring about the undermining of the Soviet model. And in countries like Mexico or Ireland, start to undermine the post-colonial settlements, or in Northern Ireland, post-colonial is not quite the right word, but you see where I'm going with that. So mm -hmm. from that point onwards in particular, the idea that automatically there's a neat relationship between movements and parties starts to be harder and harder to hold together. It starts to become a question or a problem to a much, much greater extent. One of the other reasons for that is that the nation-state, the individual nation-state, uh, is on the cusp of ceasing to be the central location of political, economic, and cultural activity. Yeah. One of the unexpected indirect outcomes of 1968 uh, is the rise of what we call neoliberalism, moving in where the previous structures had started to break down, uh, the shift to a new kind of capitalist globalization, and hence the weakening of that location of the nation-state uh, and the government within it as this kind of key actor that you could use to bring about economic development, to transform culture, to reshape political relationships. And we're still living through the outcomes of those two processes, that the relationship between movements and party has become more and more a problem over the intervening half century, and the question of where the effective locus of power is 
what the lever is that you can use to change the world to solve the problems that you are struggling with personally, in your communities, in your movements or whatever, that question also has become uh, live like never before. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your book also has some suggestions both for uh, social movement practitioners and academics. Uh, so let's let's start with, uh, with the former. So what are the main takeaways that activists could learn from their reflections in why social movements matter? Oh, God. <laughs> That's a big question. <laughs> I mean, look, the first thing to say about the book is that mostly what it does is it tries to gather and articulate a lot of activist learning. Yeah? It makes the case that quite a lot of what presents itself as academic learning is actually what I call frozen social movement knowledge. So that's very clear if you think of Marxism, feminism, black studies, cultural studies, but also if you reflect even briefly on the kinds of problems that people like Foucault or Weber were grappling with, you can't understand them without thinking about movements. Yeah? Sociology as a set of living problems. If you extract the social movements component from it, it winds up very thin, very boring, very, very 1950s indeed. So I'd feel awkward saying, well, the book tells movement activists something that they don't know. But of course, one of the things about movement activism is that people are forever coming to it afresh. New people, people who aren't coming from social movement backgrounds, their families, their cultures, don't share much of this stuff. So there's always a necessary moment of saying to people, do you realize, for example, these movements we're in have a history, which is something of what I've just been talking about. Or what I talk about in the book a little bit as an activist ABC, that there are things which experienced activists work out for themselves, or if they're really lucky, they're trained into, that have to do with how do you develop a movement? How do you radicalize a movement? What are the pitfalls to avoid? What are the sort of fundamental principles of organizing? that are pretty much valid, separate of the specific movement you're in. Because quite often, people don't know very much about movements other than those around their specific issue, those in their specific locality or country, those that are going on right now. And that's a real weakness for us as activists, because it is so expensive in terms of energy, effort, internal rouse, very often repression, 
struggle, organizations falling apart, things having to be remade. It's extraordinarily expensive to learn everything for yourself. So uh, developing a wider understanding among activists of here are things that we know in movements, here are things that we can share with each other. That's very important. The notion that I talk about of learning from each other's struggles, that saves us so much time and effort. It really, really does. And given given this uh, variety of knowledges that are uh, surrounding social movements, um, what, what, what does this mean for, for academics and other intellectuals interested in, in, in producing knowledge that is relevant for, for social movements? Goodness. Um, you're not asking small questions here. So I think quite often what academics want to do and what their situation pushes them to do is to speak as if from on high, as if viewing the world from a very high place with not as much explicit and conscious dialogue as there should be. So what I mean by that is that there may be a large-scale panoramic analysis of this or that with no reflection on how do I actually know this? Whose priorities, preferences, interests and so on shape this? Who am I saying it to? Why am I saying it to them? The pretense is simply that this is objective truth, quite separate from the speaker and the audience. Even more so, of course, when, as often happens, people put in normative statements to say, we should, we must, without being clear who the we is. And of course, as sociologists would say if they observed other people doing this kind of thing, what that actually amounts to is an unconscious, unarticulated, unstated taking up of a social position, an adoption of a set of purposes and interests which aren't clarified. So I think the immediate takeaway for movement researchers is that more explicit and open dialogue with people in movements. That clearer statement of, okay, I'm talking about this with you on the basis of your interests, needs, concerns, purposes, and seeing what I can say back to that, what I can ask you, and so on, in a socially situated dialogue. That's always been there unofficially around the edges of social movement studies, but the pressures of academia often make it seem rather illegitimate, not least because social movements are messy places. They don't fit very well with professorial careers. They're not very Ivy League things, or Oxbridge things, or whatever it might be. So, bizarrely enough, while architects uh, or people who study international relations or people who teach nursing or whatever are very, very happy to have 
dialogue between practitioners and researchers as a pretty explicit and often central part of teaching, training, research and so on, it seems a messy and dodgy um, kind of side issue in uh, a lot of social movement studies. It threatens the unstated social interests of a lot of researchers to do that. Which is quite weird if you think that, you know, departments of international relations are very happy to have, you know, quite often war criminals come and speak to them. You know, people who've been involved in some extremely dodgy military activity, for example, in the majority world, but have high status positions within Western foreign policy or military establishments. That's not problematic. Apparently, it doesn't raise questions about ethics. It doesn't raise questions about the interests that are being served by research. But if you say, well, you know, maybe we should have more dialogue with social movement practitioners, that becomes quite problematic quite quickly. People get very nervous. And obviously, from a sociological point of view, it's not very hard to explain why that might be. Mm -hmm. And then based based on, on, on the research that you have done in the book and also that the uh, maybe like some texts that have inspired you as, as an activist, um, do you have any book suggestions for activists who would want to, to continue reading about social movements and organizing? It's hard to know because I started by saying, look, one of the problems is that social movements researchers don't write general books for a wider audience. But it's also true that from the activist side, there is often a gap in terms of what should we read beyond this. Now, that's not true if people are explicitly in, let's say, a feminist, autonomist, black militant, or whatever tradition they're presented with a set of texts to read, um, or maybe a set of histories to read, and usually there's an explicit connection to movements there, an explicit connection to struggle. But if you're not, quite often at a certain point you get left high and dry, uh, or you're offered, let's say, just sort of quite managerial training ebooks. Uh, uh, particularly in the US, there's quite a an industry of social movement training of quite a quite a narrow type. So there's a genuine challenge there, which also reflects the challenge that movements have of developing their own knowledge base, their own training, education, institutions, their own sense of culture, history, identity, stretching further across time, further across space. So it is. this is part and parcel of the challenges of movement development. Um, I don't want to totally dodge your question, though. So what I will say is that in my experience, what a lot of activists love is past a certain point, when, they, when they've got to that point of going, I know what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis, I can see how this current situation is working, but I want to think on a bigger scale, is they go off and they start reading history or biographies. Um, 
if I had to mention just one book that's absolutely cracking in this respect, um, it's The Many-Headed Hydra uh, by Lineborn Redeker, which looks at a remarkable variety of social movement activity, alliance, learning, and so on, um, across the uh, golden age, really, of Atlantic capitalism. So in the period of piracy, in the period of the American and French revolutions, the way in which sailors, slaves, soldiers, indigenous populations, and so on, managed to resist, rebel, construct new ways of doing things. It's a phenomenal read, and it's great for getting out of your own local situation. It's very helpful if you think, ah, oh, how could people possibly organize anything without social media? To realize that people could actually organize pretty effectively when the most advanced technology was the sailing ship and the printing press. And now coming coming back to, to you, um, are, are you working on any new projects at the moment? Yeah, so uh, with a couple of colleagues, I've just published a collection of texts from the social movements of 1968 that I was talking about across 12 countries. Uh, we completed that just a few months back. That's out um, with Pluto, called Voices of 1968. And with two other colleagues, I'm just about to submit a manuscript looking at a figure I talk about in the book. So this is, um, we know him as Udamaloka, which is a Buddhist monk's name. But this guy was an Irish-born hobo, so a migrant worker, in the late 19th century. He sailed across the Atlantic and the Pacific, worked his way across as a sailor, he was a migrant worker across the States. Um, he clearly, he was a working class activist of some kind. Uh, he had loads of aliases. There's about 25 years of his life, which he kept very, very quiet about. He's put on trial for sedition. At one point, he fakes his own death. He eventually disappears. So he's that kind of character. He's very plebeian radical. But when he turns up in Asia, and this is between about 1900 and 1913, for those 13, 14 years, he's an anti-colonial celebrity. So this is a period in which people are using religion, local religions, as a way to push back against empire. Of course, we still have that very strongly in the case of Islam. But at the time, Buddhism seemed like this pan-Asian religion that could potentially unify people and represented something very, very different to the British Empire, the French Empire, the other presences of the Spanish, the Dutch, the Portuguese, and so on. And we've spent 10 years each, so 30 years of our lives, trying to track down this poor white who basically, as people said at the time, goes native. So he went across the color lines, across the conversion line that was supposed to separate the colonial white elite from the poor Asians that they were controlling. And 
wound up um, arguing a very coherent political program to enormous crowds in perhaps a dozen countries across Asia. So that program ran like this. They're going to come for you with the Bible. They're going to come for you with the bottle. They're going to come for you with the Gatling gun. In other words, there is this program of religious conversion, of missionary activity. There is this program of cultural transformation. The whiskey bottle in countries that were traditionally Buddhist, hence teetotal. And they're going to come for you with the Gatling gun, the machine gun of their time. So this is a program against the military, religious, and cultural aspects of empire. And we find him organizing, getting large crowds together, challenging the empire in what today is Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Japan, and a range of other countries. So that's what we've been looking at, trying to pick apart this moment of social movement struggle just before those empires started to crumble. Because in 1900, even in 1913, it felt that this imperial situation would last forever, that the world was forever going to be led by an imperial West, which had brought supposedly Christianity, science, education, modernity, women's liberation, and so on, to these benighted populations. And then within a third of a century after this guy's death or disappearance, those empires had vanished, and they'd vanished under popular pressure. So that's the story I'm working on at the moment. Well, so that sounds that... Uh... The end, of his, the end of history happened more than once then, <laughs> to put it in yeah, a... <laughs> it's happened many times, yes. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to discussing with you about that uh, very interesting character and, and book, uh, again, here in the New Books Network. Um, but uh, today, so we've been uh, talking about Why Social Movements Matter, an introduction, uh, a book by uh, senior lecturer Lawrence Cox, Uh, from the University of uh, Maynooth uh, and published with Roman and Littlefield. So, Lawrence, uh, thank you so much for your time and talk to you soon. Felipe, thanks so much.